So a lot of those basic routine tasks were being removed. So the leadership rhetoric around that was, we're taking away the boring part of your work, the cumbersome, the dull, the dreary is all being taken away and life will be better because of this new technology. But interestingly, that dull and boring work, these are the spaces in our day where we get to think, where we get to re-energize. I'm John Fitzgerald, host of the Cord Podcast. I'm curious about the changing world of work. I want to have conversations that will help us all become future ready. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the CORD podcast. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Sarah Kiern, who is a researcher, teacher and consultant in uh, strategic HRM and organization strategy at the Kemi Business School, UL. Today, our topic is digital transformation and the future of virtual work. And it's definitely something that I have a huge interest in and uh, in the work that we do with harmonics here. So Sarah's research interests are very much around that digital transformation of work, people analytics and leadership and management. And I like Sarah's background because her specialist knowledge and research is underpinned by 10 years of teaching at undergraduate and postgraduate level five years in management consultancy, and then 10 years in senior management in the private sector. So Sarah has seen it from three different dimensions. And I think this really brings depth to the research that Sarah is involved in. So you're very welcome to the podcast, Sarah. Thanks very much, John. Delighted to be asked. Great stuff. So when we're doing the podcast, what we like to do is get to know a little bit about you as a person before we talk about your areas of expertise. So maybe you might just fill in the blanks for us in where you grew up. Tell us a little bit about your younger formative years, early influences and the values that shaped you as a person. Well, I'm not really Sarah Kieran at all. First of all, that's probably the first thing we should get out of the way. I'm really Sarah Clancy. So I'm Limerick through and through. I'm the granddaughter of one of the last Abbey fishermen in Limerick. So Limerick to the bone. And my formative experiences, look, I, you know, I had a very ordinary upbringing. And isn't that the best that one could possibly hope for? My dad was an architect, uh, is an architect, well, he's retired now, Charlie Clancy. My mom, Kitty, was a seamstress by trade and worked in Eve's boutique for years, looking after all the wedding dresses of the women of Limerick City and County. I'm the eldest of three girls. Charlie's Angels, as we are always still referred to, um, had, had a lovely ordinary upbringing and went to school in Fernbank Salesians, was educated by the nuns and a great education at that. Didn't probably appreciate how good an education it was until I got older and spoke to maybe some of my peers and really realised the messages that the nuns were giving us were very progressive in terms of who we were as women and what we could achieve and providing us with great spread of subjects, you know. So we did physics, we did applied maths, you know, and we did things like civics and that kind of uh, understanding of society. So a lot of really progressive messages and a progressive education. So bring us to our topic today, then digital transformation and virtual work and the work futures survey that you've been involved in. So maybe talk to us about why you launched that and what you were hoping to learn. 
my PhD was in the area of strategic change. Okay, so I've always been fascinated with how organizations transform themselves and particularly how the journey people in the organizations go on when transformation is happening. And, you know, anyone that's worked in large organizations probably lived through some kind of transformation, you know, where their jobs are changing, particularly hard when structures are changing. So my PhD was looking at that whole journey that people go through and how they make sense of strategic change. And of course, when I came out of the PhD, the most prevalent form of strategic change was digital transformation. So the change that's driving organizations mostly now is technology. So I started to pick up pieces of research around the impact of technology on people in the workplace I did a really interesting project with the Irish Centre for Business Excellence there about two years out of my PhD, where we looked at an industry that's very prevalent in the Midwest, which is global business services, not just in the Midwest, but all over Ireland. We would have a lot of multinationals with their Irish sites taking the lead on shared services around HR, IT, regulation, quality, and finance. So we have a lot of people in this industry, if you will, this global business services industry. And we knew that digitalization was really changing those jobs. So that was one of the first big pieces of research I did where we looked at how jobs are changing and how skills are changing as a result of this digital transformation. And how are jobs changing and what skills are really important in that sector? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, one of the myths that we were kind of examining and debunking was this idea that jobs are getting easier because of digital transformation. And I think this is kind of management rhetoric, you know, that we're taking away all the cumbersome routine sides of the job. Now, these are all office jobs. So for sure, you know, if you're going down a mine to dig out coal, you know, that's a dangerous job. Wouldn't it be great to be able to get a robot to do something like that? Whereas in office work, there is no real and present danger in terms of health and safety. So it was more about removing the routine and standard work. So any repetitive task, any standardized task can be automated. So if you imagine shared services answering phones to basic queries, you know, all the customers are being moved online to uh, self-serve, you know, to find the, the simple, quick, short answers themselves or the problems that are causing those phone calls are being fixed on the back end. So it's like when our mobile phone is upgrading or our laptop is upgrading, they're fixing all the little bugs on the back end that we would normally have had to pick up the phone and ask somebody to help us fix. So a lot of those basic routine tasks were being removed. So the leadership rhetoric around that was we're taking away the boring part of your work, the cumbersome, the dull, the dreary is all being taken away and life will be better because of this new technology. But interestingly, that dull and boring work, these are the spaces in our day where we get to think, where we get to re-energize. Um, sometimes mindless work is a healthy part of a job. Um, obviously, you don't want the whole job to be mindless, but basic routine tasks actually give us space and reflective space in our day. 
Now, that's good for two reasons. It's good from a health perspective and a well-being perspective because it gives us a little bit of downtime. So while I said going down a mine might be dangerous and office work isn't dangerous, you know, it could be argued, yeah, well, office work can be very dangerous to your well-being and your mental health if you're burnt out, you know, if you're working at a pace that you're so stressed. So when you take all this routine work out of the job, you basically intensify the job. It becomes much more complex because um, there's no downtime with the boring work. That's all gone. But secondly, the customer service type work that you're doing, and it's not just dealing with customers. These are all kinds of jobs. It's more complicated. So if the machine can't fix it, then it's complicated. It's non-routine, non-standard problem. So when that problem comes to you, then it requires a lot more brain power to solve it than if it's a simple customer query. So digital transformation actually intensifies work for those two reasons. It removes the safe spaces, the quiet time of the boring, dreary work. And then the problems that you are expected to solve are more complex because machines cannot solve them. So that's the crux of the matter, really. With That's really interesting because all of the research, you know, it shows isn't this great that the routine work is being automated and this is giving us humans with higher order thinking that opportunity to do higher value work. But what you're saying is that this gives us an opportunity to re-energize and refresh, which is something I haven't really seen in a lot of the global research that's out there. Yeah, it is a very interesting point and it helps you re-energize and refresh, but it also gives you a bit of space to think, you know, so while we're doing, I mean, you know, you're printing off 500 copies of something at the photocopier, you're also thinking about something else at the same time, <laughs> you know, you're troubleshooting things in your head, you're working through problems and you could be chatting to a colleague at the photocopier at the same yeah, time, yeah. you know, so you could be troubleshooting something together with somebody else or doing a little bit of networking. All of those spaces are being eroded by digital transformation and it's important. I'm not saying this is a bad thing. You know, it's not a bad thing that we're getting rid of standing at the photocopier for an hour. But it is a bad thing not to acknowledge the time and space that that gives us and not to consider the impact of that on the employee in terms of their workload on the skills that they now need. Because if we keep telling ourselves that technology makes life easier, then we're not acknowledging how the skills are changing. And this is where we talk about the problem solving and the critical thinking. There were two, three words that we came out of this study with. One was skill density. So you were asking me earlier, well, what are the skills? The skills themselves aren't changing. You know, we all, for years, for 20 years now, we've been talking at, at least 20 about the importance of communication, collaboration, critical thinking, problem solving, customer centricity. All of these skills are still there. So there's not these dramatic new uh, skills from either a cognitive or a relational perspective. They're all the same labels. But the level of the skill that we need to deploy is much more dense. So the types of problems we have to solve are more complex. The level of critical thinking we need to deploy mm. is more dense. When we talk about interpersonal skills and communication and influencing, 
now we're talking about influencing large groups of people because yeah. the problem will involve loads of different business domains also cultures so you want to solve a problem in business today your supplier could be in the philippines or you're dealing with it who happens to be in india in your multinational you know so regardless of the type of sector you're in or the size of the organization you're dealing across large groups to solve problems so when we talk about collaboration now it's a much more dense skill that we need so density of skills is really important on the relational and cognitive side and um, dexterity was another big word that came out for us because what we found is that you know you're not problem solving between nine and ten and then thinking critically between 10 and 11 and then collaborating between 11 and 12. you have to do all of these things all at the same time so you've got to be juggling your skills and switching between skills in a much speedier way than you would have previously so that kind of skill dexterity is really important that applied problem solving applied thinking and um, now on the task side for sure there's new skills emerging okay so you know, maybe a lot of the manual skills of the past are disappearing because of robotic automation, but automation produces new data elements and new technical challenges. So we have to design the AI, we have to build the robots, we have to maintain the machine, and then the machine is generating data at a pace we've never witnessed before. So obviously these technical database skills are new. And that's everything from robotic automation, smart manufacturing, AI, and new skills on the back of that, like cybersecurity and algorithm auditors and algorithm bias auditors and things like that. And obviously uh, data science being huge because of all the data points that we're generating now. So what we can do with all this data, they're definitely a new task set that has exploded in the last 10 years and will continue to grow. I think there's a couple of things there that's, I suppose I'm reflecting on here around going back to skills density and dexterity. This, you know, the amount of interruptions now with emails and everything, technology devices, are humans set up for this amount of interruption? And how is that leading to stress and burnout, which I'm definitely seeing a lot more of in, in yeah. the workplace? What is the impact of this or, or did your research go there in relation to, to stress? And My own research only identified the burnout. So we did this um, really big survey in 2021. OK, so we launched it in April 21 and we let it run through to September 21. So. That was the height of the, well, the height of how many heights did we have in the pandemic? We thought each one was the last, but that was the second year of the pandemic. So everybody was well entrenched in working in a very new way at that point. So you were either still working on site if you were direct neighbor in terms of manufacturing or provision of retail service or other essential services, obviously healthcare being the most essential. Um, you were either still on site but working in a very new way because of health issues and then all your colleagues who could were working from home so this big pivot had happened 
And people were well set up at that stage. You know, we'd all got our laptops that are upgraded, our broadband and, and the office, you know, mindset had completely pivoted by then. So in our survey, we looked at all different aspects of work. So we weren't just doing a survey on the pandemic and the impact of the pandemic. We were looking at your job, your perceptions of, of how your job was structured. We were looking at your perceptions of your relationship with your supervisor and the organizational support you got, your perceptions of your leadership and your organizations, and your perceptions of technology and how you work with technology in the workplace. And then we were also looking at your own well-being and levels of stress. And interestingly, what we found was that for the most part, about 80% of people working in Ireland um, during that period, and we had over a thousand responses to the survey, were quite happy in their jobs, generally satisfied with their bosses, generally satisfied with their organisations. So there was a lot of good things, that ground of the job and the relationship with the boss and the team and the organisation were all quite good. And people felt generally well-skilled, you know, that they all acknowledged the, the pace of work with technology, but they felt that they could handle the technology that they had to engage with for their job. The problem areas came down to the pace of work, hours of work and stress. So it's not that people aren't happy in their jobs. There's just too much of the job is <laughs> the problem. OK, too many things going on. And, you know, this has to be on the back of digital transformation, though we can't. We didn't do enough uh, data gathering to be able to say there's definitely a relationship. But people were telling us there was a relationship. So we had a lot of open ended questions. And when we asked people, look, is there anything else you want to share with us? It was all about the pace of work, all about the pace of work. And we saw between 40 and 50 percent of the people surveyed were saying things like, I feel burnt out. My emotional batteries are dead. I find it hard to think at times and make sound decisions. And we looked at working hours and less than half of the population were working a normal working week. OK, which is what's legislated, 38 hours. OK, that's legislated for a reason that is there to protect our well-being and our welfare. And it was hard fought for many years yeah. by trade unions, etc., to get those 38 hours. And now what we're finding is people are working 40, 50, 60 hours a week. And obviously the working from home then was a factor because while it gave great flexibility and we were homeschooling half the time as well, we were breaking up the working day into chunks. And when you looked back, then those chunks could have been over 16 hours rather than in the eight that we're supposed to be working. Is it interesting then to think about that pace of work and digitization? Is the challenge coming from organizations who want more from you or individuals who are thinking, I must do more to prove myself in this environment when maybe I'm working from home and, and in a remote situation? The commute is gone, for example, and people are almost replacing that with more work rather than yeah. taking that time, that reflective space, which you might have yeah. listened to, to music or whatever, people or whatever you wanted to listen to. Yeah. People talk a lot about that. It's really interesting. They talk a lot about the time on the bus or the train or in the car or the walk or cycle where you have that reflective space and going into work. It's very often mentally preparing yourself for the day ahead. So I need to talk to Johnny about this. I need to talk to Mary about that. 
I'm all at that meeting, I'm feeling anxious about how am I going to play it, you know? And then on the way home, it's very often de-stressing. So it's trying to put behind you all the things. And it's interesting, a lot of people have this geographical marker, you know? I've heard people talk about the tunnel under the Shannon here in Limerick and they're like, as soon as I go through the tunnel, that's it, I'm switched off. I'm leaving work behind. I have a good friend who has a particular bridge in Dublin and she says, as soon as I cross the bridge, that's it, work is gone. And uh, all of those things help in our working day. So what we hear about now are things like resilience is a very common thing. And we hear a lot about well-being. And what's interesting is we're in this catch-22 scenario where technology is driving us at a very high pace because there's Mm. always work to be done. Work never finishes. There's you know, that uh, if you can think of the old intray on your desk, John, I'm sure you had one of those. Yeah. It's never empty. You know, yeah. email never shuts down. And a lot of people are working, as we said, in these geographically dispersed organizations. And therefore, it's ticking away 24-7 in some cases. And obviously, the smartphone is a killer because you have your email app on your smartphone. And honestly, if you have the notifications switched on on your smartphone, you're done. You're done for. You know, you asked earlier, is it people putting pressure on themselves? Is it organizations putting pressure on their people? It's both. Okay, it's both. To survive in these kinds of organizations, you do need to work hard. There is absolutely no doubt about that. And The organization is a large machine and the Irish site is just one cog in that machine. So it's constantly under pressure. And I've had these conversations with Irish site leaders, with uh, senior executives in Ireland, and their view is they can't stop the machine, you know. So the organization's always going to be putting pressure on the employee. And then the organization tries to counteract that with these concepts of well-being. And look, we all know the kinds of manifestations of well-being interventions that we've seen in the past. And there's an array of them. Like, first of all, one of them is, and I can remember when I worked in Vodafone and I left there in 2005, you know, there was a dry cleaners on site, for example. There was a gym on site, you know, so... Well-being kind of started as because our employees can't leave the workplace to go out to the gym at lunchtime, we'll put a gym upstairs and they can go up and work out there. You know, we put in the dry cleaners because they don't have time to pick up and drop off. You know, we put in an ATM. So it started and very progressive organizations would have put in a crash, you know, and um, you'd kind of look at all of these solutions in one way and say, oh, isn't it brilliant? I can drive into the basement, park my car drop my children into the creche, pick up the dry clean and hop up to the gym for a quick workout and then be at my desk at nine o'clock. You know, um, isn't all of this wonderful? But you could look at this very critically in a different way and say this was effort to trap people in the workplace, okay, to engineer a situation where you could stay longer in the workplace rather than really solving the problems, you know. So that was the start of it. Now, 
some organizations have started to recognize that and they did a long time before COVID and actually Vodafone Global would be an exemplar of that. I'd probably still be in Vodafone if they had some of the things that now that they didn't have when I left at, at 35 years of age. But so they have flexible working as a norm. They have remote working. They have paternity leave as well as maternity leave. You know, they have introduced really interesting and fascinating solutions around coping with miscarriage and fertility, menopause. A lot of things that are directed at women, but also apply to men like the paternity leave and sabbaticals and things like that so they're actually getting to the heart of the matter so it's the difference between the band-aid on the broken leg and actually preventing people break a leg to begin with i want to ask you a quick question is your organization going through unprecedented growth restructuring or change At Harmonix, through our consultancy and coaching work with business and HR leaders, we face one common challenge, the overwhelming pace of change and not enough time or resources to properly reset to become future fit. If you would like to register for a free diagnostic session with one of our team of experts, go to harmonix.ie to get in touch today. Now, back to the podcast. And... You know, I can see it with the work that we do. And you worked in the field of management consultancy. The amount of time now that's being given to this reflective space for leaders to take time out. This challenge and the pace of digital transformation and site leaders wanting to take a couple of days out with their teams and trying to, can you do that in three hours? Can you do that in a more condensed period? And all of this pressure to kind of perform versus the human need to just replenish and refresh like we were talking about earlier. I think that's a huge challenge for these site leaders in organisations trying to manage that tension. It is. And, you know, the irony is the solution isn't that complex, John. This is the thing that baffles me. But it is a little bit of put your money where your mouth is, you know. You take a bit of time out of the day and you're reducing what's perceived as the output, you know. However, all the evidence shows that productivity will actually increase if you reduce the hours. So it's really fascinating. You know, some of my research has looked at perceptions of time in organizations. And this is just absolutely fascinating. Some people and leaders perceive time purely as a target or a deadline. We don't have enough of it, you know, so we all have to keep running and running and running and running because there isn't enough time in the day to get where we want to go. And it's a bit like a hamster on a wheel. Other leaders perceive time as a resource. We need to take the time to do this. If we don't take the time to think about it, then we won't get the results that we want. So it's just such a fascinating juxtaposition of how you perceive time and everything else flows out of that so we talked about resilience and well-being and all these band-aids on broken legs when the solution actually is a lot simpler just build time into the day to review plan reflect all of these things that don't automatically look there's no immediate output but actually they safeguard the work into the future. 
you know, and we've had them built into project planning for years, time to plan up front, critical milestones along the way where we'll stop and reflect and then we do a big post-mortem at the end. But all of those are being eroded with new ways of working and the technology. Yeah. And we almost have to retrofit them. Yeah. We have to retrofit them into the day. And that's not hard to do. It's just a decision. It's a mindset. It's a belief. And when you talk to leaders and you look at different organizations, that's just what it boils down to. It's no magic formula. It's just a belief system. We believe that we should give an hour to a management meeting once a week. And we never, ever reduce that hour to 30 minutes. Or we believe that every month an employee should have a 30-minute sacrosanct window with their direct boss just to talk about themselves. Not to talk about the project, but it's 30 minutes about you. And I am here to listen to how your month has been and what I can do for you next month. And that 30 minutes is sacrosanct. And we measure it. And this is what's interesting. Technology is the cause of much of our woes, but technology can help us as well because yeah. we track that 30 minutes every month and make sure it's happening. That's so interesting. I suppose I grew up in an era similar to yourself where the messages, life messages, was about work hard to succeed. And, you know, that's coming through now in the leadership that are probably running many of these organisations. And I'm just reading Keith Earle's book at the moment and obviously born not too far away from Yarrowstone. And he makes a great point. I was just reading it last night where, you know, the pace of a rugby game is so intense when you're watching it. And he said you need two great things to play well in a game is time and space. Mm. And it's almost to slow down into this flow state mm. when you're in the intensity of a ball coming to you and you've got to make a, a line break. But he said it's all about time and space. And, and yeah. doesn't that relate so much to the world of work that we're just talking about? And the second thing then, I've noticed in your research the concept of smart work design. And you might just bring that in because I think it relates to the conversation that you're Yeah, yeah. About. Smart work design is really interesting. It's coming out of a research centre in Australia, an academic by the name of Sharon Parker. And the idea of smart work, it's based on years and years of research. But the acronym is quite simple and catchy. I hope I can remember what it stands for now. You're putting me to the pin of my collar here. But the S is for stimulating work. OK, so we all want some meaning in our work. OK, we all want something that's going to energize us and excite us. And interestingly, with automation, there is a great opportunity to give people stimulating work because we're removing all the boring, redundant work there. But we have to be very, very careful that what's left over is stimulating and, you know, that relates to office jobs, but it also relates really interestingly in so many other ways, like with robotic operation, very often taking the manual removes almost the craftsmanship out of the work. And, and there's nothing new about that. We were talking about that during the Industrial Revolution. But if you're going to, if someone was building something and now it's being built by a machine, you have to ensure that what's left over for the human at this human-machine intersection is still stimulating yeah, for them, yeah. that it's not just checking up on a machine every 10 minutes, but that in some way their work is stimulating. So that's really important. The M is for mastery. So people have to be well-skilled. They have to feel that they can do their job, you know, and that's all about the personal development and upskilling people. And when 
digital transformation makes some of their skills redundant, that you're upskilling them so that they can apply new skills to new challenges. And they can feel that they can do their job, that they can perform well in their job. And the A is for agency. And that's all around decision making and control. So that's really getting into the heart of the organization and how people are listened to and can they influence decisions in their workplace. And that's really, really important. And actually, agency is so critical now because jobs are changing. So the more we automate, the more we need to recraft jobs. And the only way to allow people to craft their job is to give them the agency to do that. So the more decision-making power we take away from people, mm. actually the outcome for the organization in the long term is really negative because the jobs won't grow as the people feel they need to grow. Or is relationships. I'm delighted I'm remembering them all. The relationships piece is, is critical. So allowing people build networks, allowing them grow social capital, allowing them engage and be listened to is really, really important. That kind of communication in the workplace and the support that we get from both the agency and the relationships. And then the T is the big one, doesn't stand for technology, stands for tolerable demands. And this is where the well-being bit comes in, is that we're not putting so much pressure on people that they feel they can't tolerate it. And that's around time and space. But it's also around regulation and micromanagement, you know, that you give people that little bit of space in the workplace. So... You know, you can take that smart framework and you can apply it to any job. And it's really easy. You know, it's not something that has to be done at a leadership level. If you have two people reporting to you, you can sit down with them with the smart framework and say, can we have a chat about this? I heard about this in the podcast the other day. Will we sit down? Let's go through S-M-A-R-T and let's just ask ourselves are we doing this just here among the three of us? And that's where it starts. You know, it's the great, is it Gandhi, the great, the great quote, be the change you want to see in the world. We can all sit back and wait for the leadership to solve it. And of course, they absolutely should be solving it. I'm not saying the onus is on the employee to fix this. Absolutely, it should be fixed at an organisational level. But in the meantime, there's no reason why employees in small teams or people in small businesses And, you know, I was only reading Jennifer O'Connell had a really interesting article in the Irish Times there on Saturday around hotel and hotel sector. And she looked particularly at Dingle and the amount of jobs that are available in Dingle and the fact that they can't get work. And, you know, catering work is very challenging. It's odd hours, it's long hours and dealing with customers ain't easy. You know, it's hugely challenging dealing with customers all the time be really interesting just to look at this smart work framework in those kind of hotel and catering businesses to see can we create more meaning in these jobs can we you know give people more mastery more agency over their jobs and there was a beautiful example I'm annoyed now that I can't give a shout out to the name of the hotel but there was one um, business owner talking about building a cocktail bar in the hotel because he happened to have an employee who was really interested in cocktails. And that employee actually um, was a foreigner and had gone home during COVID and now was coming back because the owner had built this cocktail bar and he'd sent somebody else on a mixology course. And, you know, that's the example of really listening to your employees, 
giving them the mastery, giving them something stimulating. It's such a small and but the yeah, the opportunity power. to do work that they're passionate about and the opportunity really to do work that they're passionate about that they can develop a new mixology skill in that and adds to the customer value proposition. I mean, it's a win-win. Um, it's a really nice and simple example of that. You talked about micromanagement and leadership there. Did you find out anything about how different leaders were during the pandemic and how they managed that transfer to home? Yeah, I'm sure it was a big struggle, a big struggle for a lot of them. And it's not a new struggle in that, as I said before, flexible working practices have been around for years, Okay. And interestingly, one of the big studies we did prior to the pandemic, one of our key findings was while technology is increasing the pace of work, it's also the solution to a lot of the challenges of the contemporary workplace by allowing people flexible working. And yet so many leaders and managers were not leveraging the technology for the employees. It was all about leveraging technology for customers, not for employees. And there's a very simple reason why uh, managers and leaders struggle with flexible work. And that's because the management is essentially controlling your employee base, you know, regulating them, prioritizing, delegating and witnessing the work happening or what they perceive to be witnessing the work happening. So coming out of the office and seeing 30 people sitting at their desks in front of you gives you a great sense of a feeling of control. So when you walk out of your office and there's three people sitting in front of you and the other 27 are somewhere out there in the cyberspace working, that doesn't give you the same sense of control. So for years, while we had legislation around flexible working practice, now it's better now on the back of the pandemic, you have the right to request flexible working now. We always had broadband. We always had laptops, certainly in, in most of our lifetimes. And we weren't engaging in it the way we should have been. Requests for flexible working, and by that I mean part-time working, job sharing, home working, or remote working, which is even being further away from the office full-time. And things like a four-day week, a compressed working week, you know, working 10 hours in four days rather than eight hours in five, um, or things like term time, so being off when the kids are off. Typically, it was left to the women to request those. And then if a woman did request them, you know, there's a great quote from one participant that's well-renowned in the literature. It's a slow train to nowhere. You know, as soon as you put your hand up and say, could I work four day week? Could I work from home Mondays and Fridays? It was like, oh, she's not interested in her career. She's not leadership material. She's pulling back, you know. So we had two problems. It was left to the women to request it. And when the women did request it, it was seen as them disengaging with their career, which couldn't be further from the truth. They were trying to stay in their career by requesting this. So what needed to change was men engaging in flexible working practices as much as women and leadership not frowning on it, but seeing it as a norm. It's just the norm that we work flexibly. And certainly the pandemic has made everybody wake up and nobody can ever give the excuse again that it's not possible because we all know it is. And we have enough evidence. We have enough empirical evidence down through the years that flexible working does not lead to decreases in productivity. There's been multiple studies done on that. And in fact, the outcomes are all positive. It doesn't have an impact on productivity. On occasion, it can increase productivity. 
it doesn't have an impact on customers. As long as the customer is being served well, they don't care where you're sitting where you're, while you're serving them. And it has many multiple behavioral and, and well-being positive outcomes. So stress levels decrease. Um, engagement with the employer increases. People feel more positively oriented towards their employer because they're giving them this flexible kind of working. So organizational loyalty can increase, you know, so loads of positive outcomes. And at least now we're kind of at this juncture in the world of work where leaders have to sit up and take note now. Um, and men have come on board flexible working in a way that they've never seen before. So it's much easier, you know, I mean, my partner is in medicine and he has his own business, so it was never an option for us. That's why it's all about me and the work, in case you're wondering what my husband's doing. Um, he's quite busy and that's just our relationship. But I have loads of, of friends and colleagues who have two part, two people working in office based roles they've suddenly started to work in a much more equal way in terms of who's going into the office today, who's staying at home today, who's picking up the kids, who's doing the dinner, because they can now, you know, there is much more equity in relationships around the domestic side of things and because of flexible working. And that's what we really need now into the future is not to forget it. We humans have dreadfully short memories, you know, dreadfully short memories. I remember Hugh O'Neill there saying recently that by the summer of 22, you won't ever know COVID had happened in this country. You know, it'll be back to normal. And I know for a lot of people who lost people, obviously things will never be the same again. But I hope that also applies to the workplace, that things will never be the same again, that we won't forget what we've learned in these two years, that we'll carry this initiative forward. Yeah, that's really interesting about the hybrid model then, I suppose, you know, that equity that you're talking about mm. from a home structure where there was more pressure maybe on the female in the environment at home mm. to do certain things. The, that hybrid model, then I'm seeing lots of organisations trying to put in frameworks that yeah. this is the one and done method. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but are, did anything come from the research there? Because I, I don't believe that you can do a one and done to, because everybody is unique and different and has different circumstances. So what do you see yeah. out there? There is no formula. And that's unfortunate because if there was a formula, then we could all just jump on board. But this is a great social experiment and it needs to be figured out. And it's not as complicated as people are making out. Now, that's just my view of the world, right? You know, I think a lot of people or organizations are saying this is really complicated. We can't figure it out. I heard one anecdotal comment there about, oh, everybody needs to come back to the office to start with and then we'll figure it out, you know, and I think they're the wrong messages. There's this two simple factors going on here. The first one, the business factor is, well, where can the work be done from? Now, look, if I work in done stores behind a cash register, I'm not going to go looking for homework. Like, you know, give me some credit. I know that I have to come into work. If I'm a nurse, if I'm a doctor, I've got to be there. OK, so I think in the first instance, we have to give employees credit. They know their jobs best. It's back to the smart framework. They are the masters of their own jobs. They should be given agency around their own jobs. People will want to be good at their jobs. They will want to perform. So they know themselves whether they can work at home at all or what jobs can be done from home and then what jobs are better or what tasks, I should say, looking at the breakdown of a job, 
There are tasks we can do at home. And then there are tasks that are better done in person. And we can figure that out at an individual employee level. So we need to look at the job first. Then we look at the person and the person's circumstances and they might differ. There will be some people who want to come in five days a week. So, you know, we shouldn't be making this blanket decree of you have to work from home every Monday, Wednesday and Friday or Monday and Friday. Some people, it'll suit them to come into the workplace. Maybe they don't want to be stuck in a spare bedroom or maybe they don't have a spare bedroom to be stuck in, you know, which is something we have to acknowledge as well. So people will want to come into work. You may find others who currently want to stay home five days a week and technically could do their job from home five days a week, but they're not maybe recognizing the value of the in-person connection. So what employers have to figure out is in jobs, where are the pieces that we need to come together for? And they are typically around managing projects, collaborating, strategizing, reflecting and reviewing. So it's kind of at the beginning of things, there's a collaboration, maybe in the middle, at the end of things, there's a collaboration. But there will be pieces in the middle, certain tasks that we all divide up to do anyway. So when we divide up to do them, we can go home if we like, you know. But even then, when we're at home, it's back to the time and space. We have to manufacture time and space into our working day. That's, to me, the, the key. So look at the jobs. Everyone will work out where they need to collaborate, where they can go about their work individually. And if they want to do that at home, let them off. If they want to stay in the office, let them do it there. But then manufacture the spaces where we collaborate and come together. And remember, they're not all just about the work. They're spaces also to network, to engage, to converse, to reflect, to think. And that's what brings the culture of the organization together. So it's manufacturing those spaces. Like I said, it could be management meetings. It could be one-to-one meetings. You can manufacture spaces by shutting down email at certain times of the day. Or, you know, you hear of nice, simple ideas like I heard one recently talking about Focus Fridays. So they don't do meetings on a Friday. It's a, Everybody can work from home on a Friday. And it's a day where we kind of focus in on our work or maybe refocus for the following week. So a catchy little name. But by creating those safe spaces in the day, you could make a decree like one to two is lunchtime. You know, last I heard it was lunchtime. (laughs) So let's keep one to two is lunchtime. You know, so we don't schedule meetings at lunchtime. And actually, I'm the CEO. I'm not available at lunchtime. And I'll make sure I'm not available. And I will switch off at lunchtime. And very often, It's the symbolism of how the leaders are behaving that really has the trickle-down effect. That's really important. And we're often our our own worst enemies in relation to not shutting down email and uh, and coaching a a senior leader at Mm -hmm. the moment. And and just that simple thing of him shutting down from 8 to 10 to do that reflective space every morning, he said it to me. You know, that's been the most important learning of our coaching sessions is just that that time for me so that I'm not drawn into this reactive thing first thing so important it's so and actually I'm doing a lot of leadership research at the moment and I heard one phrase last week that really resonated with me from a very a global leader working out of Ireland 
And she said, I'm paid for my perspective. And I have to remind myself of that. And I thought that was really powerful. If you're always on 24 seven, if you're doing 12 or 14 hour days where you're just like this all day long, you have no perspective. So she was talking about, you know, she works for an hour in the morning from eight to nine. And I think the, the kids get dropped to school. And then when she comes back, she goes for a walk for 40 minutes. And she knows there's 500 emails there waiting for her, but she doesn't open them up. She goes for a walk, listens to a podcast. You know, she talked about taking a proper lunch break for 45 minutes every single day, blocked out in her diary. Never went, oh, sure, look, I'll, I'll take that call because it's urgent. No, that's my lunch space. So, and then she talked about having the notifications off the smartphone, which I think is a very sensible one. It's very handy to have your email on your smartphone if you're away from your laptop. But having the notifications on is just insanity because oh, the thing is just ping, 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 ping him the whole time. And you're actually doing that not to, you're not to be nice to yourself, you know, you're doing it because you're paid for your perspective. And if you lose perspective, and that's what stress is that people don't recognize, it's the inability to think clearly, the inability to make sound decisions um, and to, to stand back and, and reflect and look at the big picture and not get bogged down in the detail. And when we lose perspective because we're tired and exhausted and always on, we're not doing our jobs as leaders in an organization. And it is such a powerful symbol for the rest of the organization to kind of to see a leader take back control over their own working day gives everybody else permission to do the same. I think you shared so much wisdom and we could go on forever here, uh, Sarah speaking. Just, I suppose, the survey for 2022 for anybody who'd like to participate. Yes, and we would really, really welcome participation because we're going to run the survey again this year and it'll be really interesting now to track and see what has changed in organisations from this time last year. So I'm part of a research group with the Kenny Business School called the Work Futures Lab. It's a group of organisations and agencies all working together around shaping the future of work and taking some ownership over what it's going to look like in the years to come. And I can give you the link, John, for the um, Work Futures Lab survey. But if you just Google Kemi Business School Work Futures Lab, you'll find the Ireland at Work survey there on the home page. Now, you need to make yourself a coffee. Takes about 15 minutes. We kind of decided go big or go home. So it's a big survey. It does take 15 minutes to complete. But actually, when people complete it, they actually say, wow, that really made me stop and think about what I'm doing and what I think about work. And people actually find it like a little reflection to actually do the survey itself. So I'd encourage everybody to get stuck in. I I think it links very much into our theme of time and space that we've been talking about in this podcast. And uh, I did it in 2021. And like that, oh, God, 15 minutes. That sounds very long. But as I went through it, it actually gave me some new thinking about how we're approaching things in the business here and what we needed to shape and change. So finally, Sarah, we always ask some quick fire questions to put you on the spot. So a book that you'd most recommend, it doesn't have to be business or academic, but... uh... You know, I would recommend any of the classics. Um, I'm a big Jane Austen fan. And um, I just find it, it's like my meditation. You know, I think if you're reading something that is 
different to our time and space completely, where the prose in and of itself is beautiful. It's my meditation every day. So I wouldn't be able to get to sleep if I didn't read a classic novel. There's some great contemporary stuff out there, but it very often only reminds us of all the drama that we live in. So I would be going back to any of the classics as a recommendation. And podcasts that you listen to, would you recommend anyone? Well, see, here I go again, right? Joanne McNally and Bo Williams. This, for me, it's all about my taking time out. So a very irreverent two young women shooting the breeze. When I go for my walk, that's what I'm listening to. Or Hector and Tommy Tiernan. So just, you know, complete rubbish, but some very profound insights popping up from time to time. And I don't listen, read any business books or listen to any business podcasts. Because you get enough of that work. That's what I do for my job. Yeah. 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 And the best life or career advice ever given to you in life and by whom? Oh my God, the best life or career. Look, you know, be yourself, I think. Be yourself. And I did this great workshop years ago. I won't say the name of the company now, but they asked us, it was a leadership program. And the first thing they asked us to do was to take a sheet of paper and draw a line down the middle and draw write down our strengths on one side and our weaknesses on the other. And they gave us about 15 minutes. They said, think hard now, think deep. What are your strengths and what are your weaknesses? And then the guy asked us to tear the page down the middle. So put our strengths to one side and our weaknesses to the other. And then out from under the table, he pulled this big metal bucket. It was very symbolic. And then he got out this big zippo. And he asked us to pass the bucket around. And we each had to take our weaknesses and fire it up with the zippo and throw it into the metal bucket and went around about 15 of us and then he took the metal bucket and he said right we're putting these weaknesses outside the door because this is all about leadership is all about playing to your strengths and that was so symbolic it was a really profound I was probably in my early 30s at the time and I had spent and you know I've been through this performance management system where we had to list our development areas and we had to go on courses to help us resolve our development issues and this was the first time that I actually felt actually do you know what figure out what your strengths are and play to your strengths and don't be worrying about your weaknesses because everybody has them Um, but I think that's for me career planning and moving forward and dealing with people just play to your strengths but you you do need to figure out what they are and and, you know your example of the cocktail bar in that hotel is is just Mm. an example of maximizing that within the talent you have on the team and last question then if you to name one person that motivates and inspires you who would that be and why in these amazing times that we live in I'm going to pick Anne O'Leary in Vodafone, probably because I don't know her well, though we both worked there for about a year. I was kind of leaving as she was coming in. Because of her willingness to share her own story as a leader, she does a lot of leadership talks and she's very open about sharing her own story. But because she and the other leaders across Vodafone Global have made a decision to just make decisions about some of these issues. They're very progressive in restructuring the workplace. I'm sure Vodafone is still a very frenetic place to work. I'm sure it's hard work. I'd say everybody in there works very, very hard. But they're making critical decisions to do things, to put, to figure it out and put structures in place 
and just do it rather than sit back and keep talking about it. Um, and I think that's to be commended in how they're just making those decisions and getting on with it. I don't think they would say they've it all figured out, but they're not worried about it. They're just making the decisions and no doubt they'll track them and measure the impact of them on the organisation. But at least the decisions are being made. And I think that's really important. Sarah, that's a great way to finish up. And uh, I've taken so much from this. And I think it's it's really refreshing to hear a lot of the research that you've done. And the, the big takeaway for me is that smart work design, the stimulating work, the mastery opportunities, the agency, the relational experiences and the tolerable demands. I think there's a great framework there for leaders to have better conversations with their people and to design their work in a way that is fit for the future. Mm-hmm. And on that note, thank you so much, Sarah, for taking your time today and spending the opportunity for us to listen to you on the cord. So thanks, Sarah. Thank you very much, John. Thanks for listening to the cord today. We would really appreciate if you could follow, subscribe and share as we seek to grow our community of listeners. Speak again soon.